Lots of, lots of ground to cover today, so I'm going to take us straight into it. Revelation chapter 3. You ready for your Bible today? Come on, you ready to get into the Bible today? Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Thanks, worship team. Love you guys. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Before I read, um, I do want to say we're going to skip a church. And uh, sorry, I, I lied. Um, I said we were going to do all the churches. We're going to do all minus one. And uh, the reason for that is, is Thyatira is a church that we were going to get into today, but I decided to skip it because the issue that they were facing was very much like Pergamum. It was a new, it's a nuance. And so instead of preaching an entire message around a nuance in words, um, I decided just to simply help us with Thyatira like this. So Pergamum, y'all remember last week's messages? We talked about compromise and how the church at Pergamum was compromising. Well, the church in Thyatira was dealing with a spirit of Jezebel, and in that, they were in a place of tolerance. They were tolerating sexual immorality, is what the Bible says. And so here's my one standalone message for the issue of tolerance within the church when it comes to these issues that uh, Revelation speaks about. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will freely explore. And so instead of doing a whole message around that, we just distilled it into one kind of point right there. And so we've got to make sure that we're very, we're very careful with these things. So I want to encourage you, go back and read about the Church of Thyatira. There's some amazing stuff in there. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to venture forward into Revelation chapter 3, verse, verse 1 to 6, and introduce ourselves to the, uh, to the next church. And it says this, right to the angel of the Church of Sardis. Everybody shout Sardis. Everybody shout Sardis. Sardis, not Sardine, Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He just jumps right into it, goes straight for the jugular. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Yeah. How many of you love to just open a letter and that's the first thing that you read? You're like, thanks. You could have like let in with I love you. Um, so he says, be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have, I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you're not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what, you're, at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, then and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy in the same way, the one who conquers who will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the spirit says to the churches. Today as we continue on in our mini series, War Horses, I wanna to speak to you from the subject of risen savior and the report card of a church as we look at the church at Sardis. Will you pray with me just one more time today? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and it's active and it's powerful. God, this is my prayer today that in this message, in this service, it will be different from the first service because I ask that your spirit would lead me as I speak today. I don't wanna say my words, I wanna say your words. No one needs Jason Parrish's words. We need your word because it's in your word that we find life. It's in your word that we find hope. It's in your word that we find everything that we need. And so we love you, we honor you. We submit ourselves right now to the counsel of your word, the truth of your word. And I pray that where the truth of your word is applied, it would do what you said it would do, and that is set us free. And your word says that who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so we love you and we praise you. And we go to your word now for counsel and guidance. Teach us, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, come on and everybody shout it. 
Everybody shouted? I've almost died twice. Twice. Two near-death experiences. The first one was on a cruise to Disneyland. Or not, it, it was a Disney cruise. It wasn't Disneyland, but it was a Disney cruise. It was supposed to be the happiest place on water. It turned out to be the almost deadliest place on water. And so... Um, I won't go into the, I've, I've told this story before, but that was my first near-death experience because of a viral uh, reaction that I had to a, to a flu that I'd had a couple weeks before going on the cruise. The second time I almost died was in, uh, was in Carolinas, and I went to a pastor's conference and decided after taking about a two-month hiatus from CrossFit to go back and do one of the most intense CrossFit workouts I could do with seven other pastors because, well, we're competitive people. And so... We got, in, we got into this, this workout and it had push-ups and it had pull-ups and it had running and it had all the, all the things, like all the ridiculous things that CrossFitters do. You know those, you know those uh, pull-ups that you do and you, you're swinging like this, right? Wheels on the bus go around. That's all I can think of when you're doing that. Well, um, that day I did way more than I should have done. And uh, after I got done with the workout, uh, my arms started to like swell up a little bit, which was cool at first. I'm not gonna lie. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? It was cool at first, and I got, like, I, I got on the phone with Erica, and I was like, yo, I look good. And then it quickly turned into, like, they're not, they're not, not, they're like not going down. They, they're, they keep on inflating. And I was like, that's not normal. <laughs> and it uh, ended up happening. I, I got this thing called rhabdo. And if you've, if you've been in, uh, if you're in athletics at all, and it's when you tear your muscles so much that they can no longer repair. And uh, so what happens is the creatinine and protein in your blood uh, starts to go to your kidneys and it starts to poison your kidneys and your kidneys can't filter it out. And I was going towards renal failure. And uh, for the first two days in the hospital of the five that I spent, um, they wouldn't tell us anything. And they, they kept us in, in, in silence. Erica's like tearing over everything to try to get me moved to the, uh, to the U of U. And then the doctor came in a couple days later, later and was like, hey, listen, for those first two days, we were literally just waiting for you to die. That was how bad things were. And I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> you could have told me, right? I'm just reading a magazine. <laughs> and so could have said goodbye to my kids and my wife. You know, that's a part of the, part of the dying process. And so um, it was pretty crazy. But here, here's what I realized in those two instances. How many of you would agree with me on this? It is moments of near death that always cause you to think about what it means to be alive. Right? Maybe, maybe you've been in a car accident before. Maybe you've been in a, in a ski accident since we're in snow season. And maybe you've been in certain moments where you, you've been at the edge and you're like, man, like every single time you've experienced that or, or, or the moment that you did experience that, it realizes it causes a recalibration where you realize like, man, there, there's, there's a lot to life. You ever been there before? It causes you to step back and maybe you've been at a funeral before and it causes you to step back and go, man, there, there's so much to consider when it comes to life. See, the issue that Sardis was facing was the metastasizing spiritual lethargy that had grown in them, causing a sleepless, ineffective, and dying church to be produced. Sardis had fallen asleep. Sardis was near death. And so Jesus would say, hey, listen, I want to get right at it because, church, I need you to come back alive. I need you to make sure that while it's still your watch, that you don't slow down, that you don't get lethargic, that you don't get apathetic, but that you stay alive. And that's what he was saying. He was saying, dear Sardis, I'm nervous for you. I'm concerned for you because it looks like you are on your way out. It looks like you are dying. And this is a 
a scary thing that we've got to really kind of come to terms with. And this is actually one of, my most, uh, one of my most favorite churches to be preaching about because I think there's some really strong application for us. So let, let's look at Sardis. The, the team's gonna throw some pictures up so we can do a little archaeology really quick. This, this is Sardis. These are remains that are, that are left in Sardis. Look how beautiful this is. It was an important commercial city. It was located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira on an important trade route that ran east and, and west. It was religiously concerning. It was the center of pagan worship and the site of a temple of Artemis, and the ruins still exist today. Important industries included jewelry and dye and textiles, and it, it made the city extremely wealthy. The other point of interest for us to consider today is that this city was famous for its kings across history. But one in particular that we need to note, so there's this river called the Pactolus River, which was a tributary of the, of the Hermes River, and it was early, early discovered to have gold dust in it. This discovery gave rise to a myth that many of you, that I understand, is the myth of King Midas and the Golden Touch. So right here around Sardis, there's this river that has gold dust in it, and that myth concerning Midas came out of this region right here. So the town was wealthy, the city was wealthy, it had a robust military reality. But the history of Sardis was what's really interesting. Sardis had been conquered many, many times military-wise. And what was particular about their conquering is that the, the conquests that were made over this city happened in the middle of the night. So the mili these, these, con these conquesting militaries would come and they would, they would conquer Sardis in the middle of night. And it's really interesting. They have this backstory. They have this history that they're thinking about. And Jesus says to them, if you don't get some stuff straight, I'm gonna come to you in the middle of the night, which would have caused them to be like, whoa. Y'all see what I'm talking about? So he's connecting a thought to them because they, they, they had an understanding, a visceral understanding of what it meant to have somebody sneak up on them. But even more important to realize is that Sardis is a city that was living on the fumes of its glory days. Come on, guys, you know the glory days? Come on, athletes, remember the glory days? Before you took four steps and something hurt? <laughs> like I pulled a hammy, how? Getting up. So Sardis was a city that was living on the fumes of its glory days. Many scholars believe because of its long history, it was rebuilt to look like its former days, but it was dead on the inside. This is where that age old adage comes from, looks can be deceiving. Come on, you ever, you ever been someplace where it looks beautiful and, and, and everything looks like it's put in order, but then you get closer to it, you get inside of it and you go, wow, it's, de it's dead in here. You ever been to a restaurant that has great reviews on Yelp and it looks awesome from the outside and then you go in and you're like, can we leave because there's four people in here? that it's great on the outside, but it's dead on the inside. The city of Sardis was that, and the church at Sardis was starting to represent its surroundings. That it looked good on the outside, that Jesus would say, you, you're, you're known for your works, but you're actually dead. And this is the thing that we must consider this morning. To the best of our knowledge, the church at Sardis was no longer maintaining the vitality and commitments it once had. This would be why Jesus would say, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. Come on, every shout, wake up. Wake up. Come on, every shout, wake up. 
So the message is really simple today. I wanna spend the remainder of our time together looking at the characteristics of a church that is fully alive. Let me say that one more time. Looking at the characteristics of a church that is fully alive. Fully alive. And, uh, and what it means to remain alive. I wanna say this as a qualifier. I know that there are many of us in the room today, this is your first time at church, you've never been here before, you're kicking the tires of faith, you don't know where you're at with Jesus, you don't know whether you believe in Jesus or not, and I'm, I'm so glad that you are here, and I hope that you can keep on coming here. This message today, especially as we speak to the church, about the church, is a message for those of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus. It's important for us to struggle with this, and if we call ourselves followers of Jesus today, I hope this message gets in our hearts. I hope it challenges us to the core today. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Five characteristics of an alive church. Number one, every shot number one. Here's the first one. An alive church is expressive and responsive in their worship. <laughs> it's a slow clap, it's a slow clap. You're expressive and responsive in their worship. Luke chapter seven, verses 36 to 39 says this, then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. Can we just pause right there? Does anybody else find that very weird? Can we be honest in church today? I know we read the Bible and we're like, oh, this is total normal, this is normal behavior. <laughs> when was the last time you saw that at a party? <laughs> right? What do we have happening right here? Well, she wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them. Okay. <laughs> Can we read the Bible in, in reality? Does anybody else just kinda go, oh, no. And anointing them with perfume. I want you to get this picture. The reason I do this is because we gotta get a picture because I think so many times we sanitize what we see in the Bible. We're like, that's total normal behavior. It looks so beautiful, just a woman in her hair and just wiping his feet and kissing his feet and rubbing perfume on his. This is normal stuff that happens at Nordstrom all the time. <laughs> But what are we seeing? We are seeing an expressive and responsive reality in this woman's life as she recognizes who Jesus is for her. And so she comes to Jesus. See, worship is a response to the extravagant love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus. Worship is a response to his grandeur, his beauty, and his lordship. Worship is a response to his holiness, his character, and his power. Worship is not predicated on our personality. It doesn't matter who you are. I'm an introvert, doesn't matter. I'm an extrovert, be quiet. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm this, I'm that, I'm a, I'm a D on the disc task, I'm, I'm the, I, it, it doesn't matter. Your personality doesn't matter when it comes to who God is and our response to him. 
I have 100% biblical conviction that an alive church is a church that is responsive and expressive in their worship to Jesus. And we press into this a lot around here because worship is of high value here at the well. Why? Because it's the mark of being alive. It's the mark of being alive. It doesn't matter whether you're excited about it or not. It's the mark of being alive. Let, let's look at this. Let's throw up this grid really quick that, that we've got for us. It's gonna come up on the screens. In Psalm 27, verse six, it talks about shouting in worship, which Chris and the team did well this morning. It was awesome. 95, verse six in Psalm, bowing. Psalm 34, one, speaking. Psalm 37, six, singing. Psalm 149, three, dancing. For some of us who have rhythm. Not everybody. <laughs> Psalm 119, 120, standing. Psalm 47, 1, clapping. Psalm 63, verse 4, lifting hands. Psalm 33, 2, playing. All of these are references to our worship all throughout Scripture. Yes, for sure, there's reverent moments. Yes, for sure, there, there are times where I'm not clapping and, and maybe I'm being more introspective. But if you find yourself more on one thing than the other, not giving God the totality of who you are to be expressive, I wanna challenge you in your worship today. For some of us, you're like, I don't move at all. Turn <laughs> breath in my lungs. And I won't move my lips at all because that would be too much for you. <laughs> Go half mass today. Take a risk. Some of us need to bow because that's what strips the pride out of us. Some of us need to lift our hands because that's what gets the ego out of the way. God doesn't care what you look like. He wants your praise. He wants your worship. He wants what's on your lips. He wants what's in your heart. He wants your hair. He wants your feet. He wants your dance. He wants your bowing. He wants all parts of you. Because you're designed for worship and worship's a response. C.S. Lewis said it like this, praise is inner health being made audible. Praise is inner health being made audible. I love C.S. Lewis. He's a boss. Number two, every shot number two? Here's the second characteristic of a church that's alive is that it's biblically literate, personally, and doctrinally congruent corporately. First Timothy chapter four, verses 11 to 16 says this, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth. Come on, young people. Don't let anyone look down at you. Come on, young at heart people. Don't. <laughs> Look at that, you outshouted the young people. Let's go. Don't let, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. Give yourself to a cause. And until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things, practice these things. P -p 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 practice these things. What does that mean? You do them daily. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. And then here it is right here. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. 
In some translations, it would say, pay close attention to your life and your doctrine. Persevere in these things, keep going, don't give up, for in doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. Scriptural literacy and faithfulness is the mark of committed Christ followers. Not perfect Christ followers, hello. That's not what it says, so we, so we get this straight, don't get it twisted, not perfect Christ. Scriptural literacy and faithfulness are the mark of committed Christ followers. I've heard a lot of people say that they don't have the time that they need to read the Bible, engage with the Bible, or even really interact with the Bible. But I heard this ever so succinctly the other day from a friend, Pastor John Tyson, he said this, you discipline yourself around whatever it is you love. Come on. You discipline yourself around whatever it is that you love. Some of us, and I don't say this like in a, in a negative way, some of us are gonna discipline ourselves to the mountain as many times as possible this winter. Nothing wrong with it. We're gonna discipline ourselves into the gym. I'm gonna discipline myself to some turkey. <laughs> but you will discipline yourself around whatever it is that you love. I discipline myself around my wife and my family. Why, because I love them. So you, you, you will do it. And so if I fall in love with God's word, the desire to be biblically literate, we need biblical literacy right now more than we've ever needed it before. And we need to be congruent doctrinally at a corporate level as well. That's why we're preaching some of the stuff that we're preaching right now here at the well, because it's important that we get sound teaching and doctrine happening. And then we've got to go, it's incumbent upon you. Don't just come to church and listen to me. Go home, tear through this thing, open it up, get into it, eat it up, take it all in. Even the confusing parts, why? Because this word is necessary for our soul. Notice that the alive church that I'm describing is one with both spirit, worship, and word, doctrine and theology. Have you ever noticed, maybe for those of us especially who've been around church, some of us, this is your first time in church, so you wouldn't notice it, but some of, some of us have been around enough churches where you have an all spirit church. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All spirit. Worship is an hour long. Deep things of God, nothing wrong with it, right? But, have you ever been to another church where it's all doctrine and theology? And that church is a bludgeoning tool to the world around them and the people in there. Truth, truth, truth. Right? So you got these polar swings. I think God's bringing it back. We need both. Listen to this pointed way of saying it. Author R.T. Kendall said it like this. There are word churches and there are spirit churches. There has been a great divorce in the church between word and spirit. And like any divorce, some kids go with mom and some kids go with the dad. Revival happens when you bring both those two back together. So we need, to be, we need to be expressive and responsive in our worship, absolutely, but we also need to be anchored and, and, and foundationally secure and biblically literate and doctrinally congruent as a church and as an individual. Number three, every shot, number three. Here's the third one. Engages in faithful and sacrificial giving. Get quiet in church today. Engages in faithful and sacrificial giving. Now, I've got a lot of notes that I'm not gonna read through because then I won't get to my other points and we'll be here till tomorrow afternoon. So, 
I want you to go back to a message. If you can, I'd love for you to go back. We did a series called Saving Sacred, and we did a whole, a whole thing on tithing and giving and why it's vital to our life as, as Christ followers. Here's what I want to say, is that the mark of a church that is fully alive is that it's engaged in faithful and sacrificial giving. And this is important for us because there's so much that takes place as we give ourselves to giving. Now, you may say to yourself, well, there's so, there, and you've heard this before, there's, there's so much said about like, well, we're not supposed to do that anymore. We don't need to do that anymore. That was in the Old Testament. Can I just clear something up? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament is for us today. They go together, we can't remove the two. And so you see a continuation. The only difference is, is that we no longer have to do anything that produces salvation in us. You cannot give your way, earn your way, produce your way, strive your way into eternity with Jesus. You cannot earn your salvation. Can I be abundantly clear about that? There is not anything that you can do to earn it. But something happens in us when I realize my salvation produces something in me and that is sanctification. And as sanctification starts working, all of a sudden this generosity muscle starts welling up in me and I desire to make sure that my resource doesn't have power and control over me. So I give my body to worship. I give my resource to make sure that pride and ego is in check and self-reliance is in check. I'm gonna talk about a few more points in just a moment. And I give in such a way because I believe in the local reality of what God is doing in the church to see the local church move forward and the big C church move forward. Four claps, we're gonna get to all there in just a second. Can I just help us today? Can we please not be the church that gets uncomfortable when we talk about resource? Our church gave $35,000, much more than that in our legacy offering this year so that we could send Bibles to China for students who cannot get them. We illegally smuggled them in. Come on, somebody. I think so often we go, we go, the church has gotten really good at ignoring one track to the other. In order for things to move forward, how many would you, you would agree with me? We need people. Yeah. Every great initiative needs people, right? Yeah. Okay? But on the other side of it, you can have all the people in the world and no resource. There's no gasoline in the vehicle. So every great initiative needs resource as well. But you can have all the resource in the world and no people, and you ain't moving nowhere. But when the church gets to this place where it's got people who are growing in their faith and their fervor and their excitement for Jesus and it's resourced in such a way financially that we can actually dream the things that we wanna dream. We can actually help women who are being rescued. We can actually go into the highways and the byways and do this. We can actually plant churches. We can actually produce campuses. Come on, somebody. We can actually do the things that we, des that we want and desire to do. See, a lot of us dream about doing great things, but we don't give towards it. Because it makes us feel good to dream about it. At least I dreamed about it. At least I felt awesome about it, but Jesus said, your works aren't complete. Are y'all tracking with me today? So this is really important for us to, to realize. Well, Jason, what about the, the climate around us and the markets and all this different Stuff happening. Don't you see what's happening in cult? Yes, I see it all. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses four to six. One who watches the wind will not sow. And the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. 
In other words, what he's saying is if you're paying attention to the weather, you'll stay inside. You know what I'm talking about? If you pay attention to the weather, you, you'll, you'll stay inside. Have you ever seen those montages of sports people who are committed to just being like absolutely crazy good at their craft or their sport? Right, have you ever seen the montage where it's like, and then all, like I and the Tigers in the background, dun, 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 like all that's going on. And then it shows them that one, that one moment, they're outside in the rain dribbling a basketball. Yeah, yeah. And, hit, why? Because they don't, they're not paying attention to the weather. It doesn't matter what's happening around us, but here's what we need to understand about, the, about our, our space, our reality that we exist in as a church, is we don't need to pay attention to the weather because our economy is not because of the economy around us. We have a different economy, it's the economy of heaven. God said, I will open the flood. Come on, somebody. So a church that is alive, it's expressive in its worship. It's committed to, to the faithfulness of scriptures. It's a church that's engaged in generosity faithfully and giving. Number four, the fourth one is this, that a church that is alive is fervent in spirit, empowered prayer and intercession. We're fervent in spirit-empowered prayer and intercession. Listen to Philippians chapter four, verses six to seven. Don't worry about anything. You ever get to parts of the Bible where you're like, no, nope, I'm out, I'm done with that one. <laughs> what do you mean, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then what happens in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 21. Rejoice always. There it is again. Always? Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. Well, why? Well, because the Bible tells us this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You ever thought to yourself, what's the will of God for my life? Here it is. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. This is God's will. Well, that's not what I was hoping for. I thought you were gonna tell me what I was gonna do with my life. Yep, I'm telling you, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. What should I do on Monday? Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. Well, what about Tuesday, Jesus? Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. But what about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Yep, rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything. When the job's there, give thanks. When it's gone, give thanks. When it doesn't make sense, pray constantly. When it's not going the way that I want it to, give thanks. I'm going to pray my way, give thanks my way through everything that God has for me. <laughs> Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times. All times. Okay, now let's just be honest really quick. Show of hands, therapeutic moment. Total honesty, no one's judging you. <laughs> Some of you are like, nope. <laughs> How many of you like me struggle with prayer at times because your mind wanders. Okay, and the first service was just like you. And I, 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 could, I could put a bet on it the, sec, the last service. I don't know what, how many services we have. And the next service <laughs> will be the same way. Eric and I, we do our Sabbath every, every weekend, Friday to, Friday to Saturday. And my mind, listen, it's a wild party up in here. <laughs> there's shapes, there's colors, there's unicorns, there's all kinds of stuff flying around. And so one of the things that 
um, we pay close attention to is I'll get into this space where like we, we put music on. Shout out William Augusto if you've ever not heard of him. It's like having a permanent keys player in your living room. It's awesome. And so uh, you can get them on YouTube or on iTunes. And so oh, we'll set the vibe and we'll have our fire going right now. And we've got this music playing in the background and we've got our Bibles out or our books. And there's certain moments like yesterday I was laying on the couch and, and I, was, I was like, okay, I'm going I'm to pray right now. And I'm just going to, I need peace right now. And I'm just going to give God my, my space. Sounds super holy. <laughs> and so I'm like, Lord. I'm just praying and I'm praising him. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And I kid you not, 37 seconds in, <laughs> I think to myself, as I'm praying, I'm like, God, you're so good. Does my truck have gas in it? <laughs> and then you think to yourself, like, don't open your eyes. Everybody will see that you've broken prayer. So you squints harder like it's all holy. Because if I don't put gas in the truck, Erica is going to kill me. That's my duty. <laughs> you ever been there before? Distracted prayer? Can we be humans for a second? Y'all remember Jesus' homies? He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's gonna like, you know, like blood and tears and he's petitioning with God and then he walks back out and he's like, he finds this guy sleeping. Could you, could you have not hung out with me for like just a little while? And I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm wondering like, what's in their head? Are they thinking of themselves like, no, that was a long time. That was a long, long time to pray. You were gone a while, Jesus. So Jesus goes again and then comes back again. It's still the same thing. Why? Well, this is what I love about scripture. It's, it's, it's humanity on full display. Because prayer is hard. And so we've got to work at fervent in spirit, powered prayer and intercession. It's gotta be a vital part of our church community. Samuel Chadwick writes this, intensity is a, is a law in prayer. There are blessings of the kingdom that are only yielded to the violence of the vehement soul. Charles Finney said this, great preacher, he said, I've never known a person sweat blood, but I've known a person pray till blood started from his nose. And I've known persons pray till they were all wet with perspiration in the coldest weather in winter. I've known persons pray for hours still their strength was all exhausted with the agony of their minds. Charles Finney was speaking of a good friend of his known as Daniel Nash. Father Nash, as he's come to be known as a laborer with Charles Finney in, in the 1800s, and Finney would go into towns and he would preach crusades. And people would get saved, they'd give their lives to Jesus, and he'd go town to town to town, and he would be preaching. But what was interesting is that Finney never went into those towns alone. He always had Nash with him. Because Nash was a fervent prayer. And the way the history goes is that Nash would go into a town two or three days earlier, and he would rent a room somewhere, and he would spend two to three days leading up to Finney's crusades praying in the spirit, praying and petitioning, praying and petitioning, praying and petitioning. And then when the, when the crusade was happening, he would pray and petition, pray and petition. And then even afterwards, he would continue to pray. And this was the mode for their life together. He would, Finney would go in and Nash would be with him. Nash would go into the next town and pray. And this, this was it, this was it. This was their cadence with each other. And shortly before Nash died in the winter of 1831, he wrote in a letter this. 
I am now convinced it is my duty and privilege and the duty of every other Christian to pray for as much of the Holy Spirit as came down on the day of Pentecost and a great deal more. My body is in pain, but I am happy in my God. I have only just begun to understand what Jesus meant when he said, all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Many people have heard of Finney, but few have heard of Nash. It would be Nash's gravestone that I saw in a picture recently that has impacted me so profoundly. Found in New York in an unmanicured and dilapidated gravesite near the Canadian border. You can find this unassuming gravestone, and I love what it says. Daniel Nash, pastor, laborer with Finney, mighty in prayer. Could you imagine if something like that is written on our gravestone? Mighty in prayer. I think over the next decade that is in front of us, church, intercession and prayer is gonna be one of the greatest weapons that we have in our arsenal when it comes to continuing to press into everything that God has for us. Prayer is what demolishes strongholds. Come on, prayer is what we do when we're believing over our families and our loved ones. Intercession is what some of us should be doing right now as we get to the end of the service and we're gonna point people to Jesus. Nash and Finney, Nash and Finney. I wanna ask you this question. Do you have enough faith to pray for anything? Pastor, labor with Finney, mighty in prayer. And the last one is number five. Everybody shout number five. The mark of a church that is fully alive is it's committed to reaching people far from God. I'm gonna say that one more time. It is committed to reaching people far from God. It is committed to reaching people far from God. It is committed to reaching people Far from God. I'm gonna say it till it sinks in. It is committed to reaching people far from God. I wanna read you something. It's not in my notes. Go a little off script here. If you got your Bibles, like the good old-fashioned leather-bound ones, pull yourself over to Romans chapter six. I read this the other day and I thought this is it. Romans chapter six, verse 19 says this. Actually, verse 18, it says, and having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity, and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness, so what fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcomes of those things is death. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is one of the clearest statements that we have about the goodness of the gospel, and I love it. That the wages of sin is death. I hear this a lot from people who are examining Christ and trying to figure out if Jesus is something they wanna give their life to, and here's what I need to, to offer you, friend. So you can say, well, how do I believe in a God who would send people to hell? You ever heard that before? Guess what? According to the Bible, he doesn't. Our sin does. The wages of sin is death. So there's a, there's a penalty for it. And so Paul's writing, he's saying, listen, if you're gonna live according to the sin nature, there's gonna be some wages that are doled out to you. But God gave you something else in and through Jesus. He gave you a gift that's the grace found in him and that we have eternal life and salvation in him. It's a good gift. We've gotta be committed to reaching people far from God. I pray that we never become a church that's so uncomfortable because we've got packed auditoriums that we stop reaching people far from God. Okay, we're scrunched in here. People are in overflow. Cool. Let's get cozy with our neighbor because we got more people to reach. I hope we hear swearing in our lobby. That's just our staff. <laughs> I hope we see residue from Saturday night Come on. Come on. in these rooms. What are you saying? What are you saying? You, I'm saying this, you don't have to have it all together to be a part of this place. Let me offer it another way. But Jason, I'm, I'm addicted to, to heroin. God loves you. I'm an alcoholic. God loves you. I'm struggling with my sexuality. God loves you. Man, I'm in my second affair. God loves you. I'm riddled with pride and ego. God loves you. I've got crazy thoughts in my mind. God loves you. I hate a lot of people and I'm embittered. God loves you. I'm struggling to give it up. God loves you. He loves you right where you are at. Oh, some of us don't know it yet. That's the good news of the gospel, that God loves us so much that he loves us right where we are at. But the even better news of the gospel is that he loves you so much that he will not leave you there. So what are you saying? Come with your bumps and your bruises and your, come with it all. But I have to tell you this. There's a big butt in the middle of it. He loves you right where you're at. We're committed to being a church. Now you can process out this journey of faith, but there is a place and a moment in it all where we just read that he gives us new life, that I'm buried with him. This is what the water's of baptism about, and I'm risen to new life in him. Why? Because he loves me right where he found me, but he loves me enough not to leave me there. Come on, and that is the great news of the gospel. Come on, if you're thankful for Jesus today. Come on, can we give a shout? Come on, if you're thankful that you've been rescued by Jesus, can you give him a shout?
Come on, everybody, stand to your feet. We're going to pray. Can I just say this today? I know for some of you, I'm going to just be honest about this moment. I know for some of you, when I get excited and start shouting, I know it's hard. Why, why, why has he got to do that? I just live according to a principle. I got this fire shut up in my bones, and I got no other op. Like, I, I, if this is the last time you hear a message, I hope you remember it. God loves you so much. I know where I was at when he found me. Some of us sitting in this room, oh, if we could just bring you up here and tell all the stories, every one of us would be like, what? What? Come on. This is the gospel. We can't trade the gospel for TED Talks. Seven keys to a successful life. It doesn't matter. Your keys don't rescue you. Jesus does. I'm trying to drive this home for somebody in this room today because you've been on the edge. You don't know what's, for some of you, you stepped into this room today and this was the last straw. And I wanna let you know that Jesus has his eye on you. He's got his heart on you, that he wants you so bad. And I gotta let you know today that there is no other name except the name of Jesus to which we are saved by. bow our head, close our eyes in this moment. Jesus, we love you. Come on, if you're a believer in here today, just start praying. I don't know who this message is for, even if it's just one person. But today, this is the day that everything changes. He came in here today looking for new life. His name's Jesus. So we're gonna pray a prayer. The Bible says to believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. So we're gonna do that together today. We're gonna pray all together so we don't leave anybody out. But today, if you're saying, man, Jason, I want this Jesus. I wanna follow this Jesus. I wanna give Jesus everything that I am. Make this your prayer today. Come on, as loud as we can, repeat this after me. Everybody say, Jesus. I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment, that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. Today, I am repenting and I am following your way from this day forward. In Jesus' name.